Dutch colonists arrived in South America, setting up a colony along the northern coast, but that embryonic settlement called Pomeroon was wiped out about a decade and a half later by the British, and survivors from Pomeroon then founded a new settlement on the back of an existing but abandoned Portuguese fort, located on an island in the middle of a river that was an offshoot of the major regional waterway, the Essequibo River. They took over this fort and then eventually retook Pomeroon from the British with the help of their allies, the French. The specifics of all this conquering and reconquering is not terribly important, though. What's important to know is that this settlement was located in a strategic area globally because it allowed Europeans to grow incredibly valuable crops like sugarcane in a region that was accessible to ocean-traversing vessels and in a location that was an established crossroads for local trade, which made acquiring local resources a lot easier and getting workers for these plantations a lot simpler as well. All of which has meant this region, like many others scattered throughout the world, but especially those with natural ports and located somewhere near the equator where it's easier to grow such crops, was a somewhat tumultuous, violent place for a long while, in part because all these Europeans kept popping in to kill and take and build and destroy existing buildings and to fight with each other, while also leaving a lot of dead locals and destroyed local infrastructure and ecosystems in their wake. Following that initial period of back and forth, though, things calmed down a bit, and the Dutch fleshed out their holdings, vastly expanding the scope of their plantations, even to the point, and this was fairly controversial at the time, that they allowed English planters to join them from 1740 onward, which increased the scope of the plantations thereabouts still further. In February of 1781, some British privateers showed up, captured the main settlements, and then left. And in March that same year, two Royal Navy sloops arrived and did the same, conquering the area for the British crown until the French showed up, beat the local British forces, and occupied the colony. Though a peace deal back in Europe resulted in this colony being handed back to the Dutch in 1783. In 1796, it was reoccupied by the British. The Dutch retook it, holding it from 1802 until 1803. And then the British took it again during the Napoleonic Wars, and it became an official British territory in mid-1814. That was the end of that second period of conflicts, as the big violent rush to claim as much area as possible during the so-called Age of Discovery was beginning to wane. There was a sort of peace, in some aspects of the word at least, emerging between European powers, and many of these entities were finding they made more money by trading than by fighting with each other all the time. That said, a more fundamental conflict remained in this area as the Spanish held a neighboring territory. The border between that territory and this one held by the British typically delineated by the Essequibo River. So the Spanish were busy with a series of colonial independence movements when the British rolled up this collection of plantations and habitations on the east side 
of the Essequibo River, and thus the Spanish did not really have anything to say on the matter. Despite at times having claimed portions of the territory, the British were now claiming as their own. And maybe partially because of that distraction on the part of Spain, Britain's new official maps that were drawn in 1835 showed British Guyana, the name of its new official territory in the area, beginning at the Orinoco River, not the Essequibo, while neighboring Venezuela's maps showed the latter river as the border. When the government of the relatively newfound state of Venezuela, which is what that neighboring Spanish territory became, realized that their neighbor was claiming territory they thought of as their own on their maps, they complained and threatened and negotiations began, but no compromise was reached. And in 1850, the two governments agreed to not occupy the disputed territory along their shared border. Less than a decade later, though, gold was discovered in that disputed area, and British settlers almost immediately moved in and started setting up formal mining infrastructure alongside a company through which they could profit from it. The Venezuelan government continued to complain and attempted to solve the disagreement through arbitration, but the British were not keen to do so. This led to Venezuela breaking diplomatic relations with the British in 1887, and it asked the U.S. for help, and when the U.S. suggested to the U.K. that they enter arbitration, they were told no, even when then-President Grover Cleveland said that the U.S. might have to intervene if the British did not do something soon, based on the Monroe Doctrine, which basically says European powers should not meddle in the Western Hemisphere or else. The British eventually said okay to arbitration in 1897, and a decision handed down in 1899 gave 94% of the disputed area to British Guyana, and the Venezuelan government was perhaps predictably fairly upset about this outcome, but both sides formally accepted this new boundary in 1905. What I'd like to talk about today is a new rift resulting from a fresh batch of resources discovered in this long-contested area, and how that rift could spark still further conflict. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Learn more about Let's Know Things, subscribe to receive free email updates, and or become a supporter to receive monthly bonus episodes at letsknowthings.com. In 1958, British Guyana was divided into official administrative regions, and that led to the dissolution of an historical region called Essequibo, named after the river that bisected it. In 1962, as the European powers were undergoing a phase of decolonization in the wake of World War II, Venezuela restated its position that the claim it made to the territory back in the 19th century was legit, and should never have been questioned or legalized away. And part of its argument was that the British had a deal with the Russians back when that arbitration effort was completed. And the folks on the arbitration board who were supposed to be objective, because of that agreement, allegedly were swayed to rule in favor of the Brits. The British said that this is nonsense, as did the government of British Guyana and the Russians, but this remained in dispute until British Guyana gained independence from the British as a dominion in 1966, becoming the nation of Guyana, with those arbitration-established borders still in place. And they remained in place when it became a republic in 1970 as well. 
Shortly after that independence was attained, though, Venezuela started taking action of diplomatic, economic, and military flavors to retake the territory it considered to be its own and that it considered to have been unfairly stolen, arguing, and this is just one of the many arguments it has made toward this intended end, that the Geneva Agreement that it, then British Guyana, and the British all signed in 1966 nullified the original arbitration agreement the parties had signed earlier that established those still-in-place British Guyana-favoring borders. That new agreement also said that the signatory nations would solve all disputes through dialogue, though, which is part of why recent saber-rattling by Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro has been so shocking to so many people, as even though this has been an, again, tumultuous and violent area for a long time, in recent memory it's been just tumultuous, but mostly peaceful, despite those long-simmering resentments from Venezuela about this perceived violation of trust and what it considers to be the wholesale theft of a region it sees as being its own. On December 3rd, 2023, Venezuela held a referendum that asked voters if they reject the 1899 arbitration agreement, if they support the 1966 agreement, if they agree with the government's stance that the International Court of Justice has no say in this matter, if they agree that the Venezuelan government should be able to oppose Guyana's claims about the region, and if they think the government should turn the disputed region into a new Venezuelan state called Guyana Esequiba, granting all locals Venezuelan citizenship as a consequence. Low turnout was reported at polling stations for this referendum, but the official results indicated that more than 95% of voters responded yes to each of those five questions. And despite that low turnout and claims that the government may have falsified these results, they've been using those yes numbers as part of their justification for seemingly moving forward with an annexation of the region. Though as of the day I'm recording this at least, and this could change before this episode goes live, that annexation is only on paper. It's theoretical, not a practical, real-life reality. Now, part of why that vote and the results and the government's response to the results are so shocking is that this region has been governed by Guyana and its many governmental guises for generations. This isn't an area that's gone back and forth between the two countries in recent memory. It has been well and truly Guyanan for a long time, and the people living in the region all 125,000 or so of them, out of Guyana's total 800,000-ish population, would tell you the same if you asked them. They are Guyanan, and this area makes up something like two-thirds of Guyana's total landmass. In 2015, though, oil was discovered just off the coast of this disputed territory, and that led to calls by then, as today, Venezuelan President Maduro to take this territory back. Venezuela has a lot of oil already, but these new reserves were looking to be pretty sizable, and this new discovery had the potential to further enrich already rapidly enriching from the sale of other oil and other reserves they own, Guyana. So through some lenses, it made sense to try to grab the land attached to these reserves if possible, both to get that money and to prevent a neighbor with whom they've long had all sorts of conflicts from getting that money as well. That call eventually died down a bit. It remained, but was not at the forefront of conversation. 
the way it was in 2015, when Venezuela was in the midst of a presidential crisis that Maduro was likely keen to conceal a bit, moving the spotlight over to something else, and ideally something nationalistic in nature. So while getting that money was probably a big part of that renewed push, there was a good chance that political expediency and trying to get both the public and the media to look at something else, something potentially titillating in the sense that the possibility of military action tends to be titillating, and something else that might rile up the nationalistic base in support of their president, rather than encouraging them to continue questioning the president's legitimacy, which was otherwise a major topic of conversation, all of that was also a part of the calculus that Maduro was doing at the time. In October of 2023, a consortium of fossil fuel interests led by ExxonMobil announced the discovery of a significant new reserve of oil and gas, marking the fourth such discovery in 2023 alone. That announcement ran parallel to increasingly bad news for Venezuelan President Maduro, who is incredibly unpopular with Venezuelans for all sorts of alleged corruption and for driving the economy into the ground, and who is up for election in January of 2024. That election almost certain to be rigged, though the United States recently offered him incentives to not do so, to not rig the election, allowing it to be free and open and fair, in exchange for lessening some of the oil export sanctions that Venezuela has been operating under for a long while. So the state of play is that Maduro would almost certainly like to rig this upcoming election the way he has previous elections to keep his hold on power. And he kind of has to rig it if he wants to win because his popularity numbers are atrocious. But he could potentially better those numbers by allowing something closer to a free election, which in turn would get sanctions lifted and would probably improve the economy a bit. And then he could possibly further goose his numbers by raising this Essequibo issue once more and riling up the nationalistic base which would allow him to benefit from those lifted sanctions while also maybe winning the election with the minimum of corruption required on the back of pro-Venezuelan fervor riled up by the Essequibo issue. Now that is one theory of what Maduro is up to. There is still a chance that he's ramping up to just move into this contested region to start setting up shop, guarding roads, claiming the area for Venezuela based on all those historical disagreements and claims. But that option is considered to be quite risky by many analysts, as military action of that kind, annexing a neighbor's internationally recognized territory in the Western Hemisphere, no less, could be a step too far bringing neighboring militaries, including Brazil's, which has already positioned troops on the border because of this dispute, into the conflict, alongside forces and other types of aid from the United States. What might be a better option for him, for his apparent purposes at least, is to just keep on rattling that saber, raising the possibility of annexing this area, and maybe making some deals with the Guyanan government, threatening them the whole time, and as a consequence grabbing up some small piece of territory, or maybe just economic monetary rights, to some of these new assets. 
making deals instead of grabbing land, and that would still be more than he started with, while also netting him those aforementioned election-related benefits that could help him stay in power without having to do much in the way of election fraud. This is all speculation at this point, though, as the public face of this burgeoning crisis is the threat of a much larger, wealthier, more powerful nation and military telling their smaller, weaker neighbor that a significant portion of their land is not theirs and will therefore be incorporated into that larger state. That is not unheard of. It is similar to the claim made by the Russian government about Ukraine recently, pre-invasion. But it's also not super common in the modern world, as the taking of territory in this way has been disincentivized by international structures and alliances that generally make the consequences of doing so a lot weightier than the benefits of acquiring that portion of land. We are entering a new post-Ukraine invasion age, though, in which a lot of those prior norms and expectations are being challenged or upended. Neighbors invading neighbors, which may be gestures at a new norm, but some of these governments maybe are just hoping to get in while the getting is good, righting perceived wrongs and grabbing what they think they can before the international order gets wise and implements some new system of carrots and sticks, assuming and not without reason, that it will make more sense for everyone in the aftermath to just leave things where they are at that point, rather than trying to put pieces of the former setup back together in some way, which would be super difficult. The governments of Venezuela and Guyana had a meeting in the nearby island of St. Vincent recently, in which they agreed to an 11-point declaration, which included a mutual promise not to use force against each other, no matter what and to avoid escalating the conflict in any way. But their disagreement over who should have jurisdiction here, with Guyana pointing at the International Court of Justice and Venezuela saying that the court should have no say in the matter, could complicate these discussions before they have a chance to really start making any progress a slogging, pit-trap-laden effort. <laughs> The book I'd like to recommend today is called Your Brain on Art, How the Arts Transform Us by Susan Maximin and Ivy Ross. The underlying premise of this book is that art is not just something for wealthy people, it's not just a form of entertainment, it's not something to do when we're not doing something more important. Instead, it is fundamental to our psychological and cultural and societal well-being, in part because it can influence us so strongly and help us see and think and do things differently, and hopefully better as well over time. The book includes interviews with artists whose names you'd probably recognize. It includes recent research into this subject that shows demonstrably that art impacts us in various powerful sorts of ways, and it makes the argument that we can weave artistic expression into all different facets of life, including at the fundamental, systemic, even legal and governmental level. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Your Brain on Art by Susan Maximin and Ivy Ross. You can subscribe to receive email updates, find show notes, and other such content, and support this show financially, receiving additional bonus episodes as a thank you at letsknowthings.com. 
Learn more about me and my work at colin.io. Subscribe to my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods, or at onesentencenews.com. And say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter, and Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.